You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Acts. Here's Nate. Well, when we left off at the end of Acts chapter 14, we left Paul and Barnabas serving, ministering to, and pastoring the predominantly Gentile church in Antioch, north of Israel. And things were going beautifully. And of course, the gospel has already been opened up to the Gentile world through the preaching of Peter. But it tells us now in verse 1 that there is a confrontation, a controversy. It says in verse 1, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Now, it seems that this group from Judea, which of course is where Jerusalem presides, that this group, although they had no real authority, acted as if they did have authority because of where they had come from geographically. And this, I think, is common when there is a fresh work of God's grace. Those who have experienced God's grace in beautiful ways in the past, or those who are part of the established work of God already on earth, feel a need to so often weigh in on the new things that God is doing. And unfortunately, so often take a critical and judgmental spirit about them as if they are above them rather than wanting to learn and to see what beautiful thing is God doing in this place. And rather than coming from Judea, to learn and to celebrate and rejoice at this fresh move of God in Antioch, these were those who started teaching, hey, look, this is great what's happening here, but you must be circumcised, and if you aren't, then you cannot be saved. What we don't know is how these teachers dealt with Cornelius and his household, who were obviously saved and filled with the Spirit immediately upon belief, or with the church in Antioch, we just don't know how they dealt with these very real people that were right there uh, in front of them. But their big teaching was, you must adopt circumcision, which was really a picture of the overall Judaism that they expected people to adopt. Now, what they were forgetting in all of this is that circumcision had actually originated in the Old Testament with Abraham. And Abraham was justified by God without circumcision. That was something that came later. And Paul, in Romans chapter 4, verse 9 and 10, made sure to communicate that. He says, how then was righteousness counted to Abraham? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, he said, but before. 
So that tells us that Jew and Gentile, male and female, can be saved without Judaism. But, of course, this group did not believe that. And God had never established circumcision as a way to save anyone. Uh, But by the time of Christ, the Jews had thought that it provided some semblance of salvation. And that's why this group is repeating it to this new Gentile church in Antioch. Well, anyways... There's this big debate about it in the church in Antioch until finally Paul and Barnabas make a decision and they are appointed by the church to go up in elevation south uh, geographically to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So here, that question about what do we do with Gentiles, should they convert to Judaism before they convert to Christ or shortly thereafter, That big question is going to be answered right here in Acts chapter 15, at least in part. And Paul and Barnabas, I'm sure in their mind, are going there to do exactly what Jude told us to do in in the third verse of his short one chapter epistle to contend earnestly for the faith. Paul actually said in Galatians 2 verse 5 in describing this meeting, he said, And these people coming from Judea, he said to them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So in verse three, Luke writes and says, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. So the whole way from Antioch to Jerusalem, every time they got together with believers, whether it was in Phoenicia or Samaria, they gave a testimony of the conversion of Gentiles that they had witnessed through their missionary journeys and in their home church in the church in Antioch, and people celebrated it. And I almost imagine those reports in Phoenicia and Samaria as a practice run for the testifying that Paul and Barnabas were going to do in Jerusalem. When they got to Jerusalem, they were well received. But, verse 5, some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Now, Paul himself had been a Pharisee, but he was not part of the party of the Pharisees. He had set aside that identity, especially for the sake of preaching the gospel to the Gentile world. But this little group of believers, you know, they were saved individuals, but had connected strongly to the party of the Pharisees. Uh, they began to promote the idea, hey, don't we need to ask these new Gentiles to keep the ceremonial law of Moses and to be circumcised? So they were there, ready to consider it all. And after there had been, verse 7, much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now, this is beautiful. Uh, Peter stands up after all of this inquiry, debate, and questioning, and appropriately, in an official capacity, he speaks first. 
Now, obviously, he was significant. Jesus had said to him that he gave him the keys to the kingdom. You know, Peter would be the one who would open up the door to of faith to the Gentile world, of course, through God's plan and leading. He was significant in Jesus's ministry. He was the first among the 12 disciples and the first amongst the three, Peter and James and John. And, and everybody there in the church in Jerusalem knew that and they understood that. So Peter gets up and he speaks. Now, it is fascinating. This is the last mention of Peter in the book of Acts. So this helps us understand Peter's function and role. He needed to settle this. He needed to seal this. And once he did, uh, at least as far as Luke is concerned, uh, Peter's ministry is not the focus of the book of Acts. Because again, he, Luke is recounting for us how the gospel got to all the world, kind of answering that question for Theophilus. How did the gospel get to all over the world? And so he's detailing Peter as long as Peter is involved in the crucial steps leading to the evangelization of the nations. Now, Peter just confesses to everybody, look, you know that God chose me by my mouth that the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. So he's talking at this point about Cornelius's household, which at this point was probably 10 to 15 years before this council in Jerusalem which would have happened about A.D. 49 or so. And God, who knows the heart, Peter went on to say, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, through the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Now, Peter's main point is found there in verse 9. God made no distinction. And he explains the fact that God had made no distinction by declaring in verse 9 that God cleansed their hearts by faith. That is in direct contrast to the circumcision that some people were demanding there that day because they were wanting something outward and physical and what peter announces is that that god has done something inward and spiritual which is more real and significant than any outward physical circumcision could ever provide this mirrors or echoes the words of paul in romans chapter 2 28 and 29 there he said no one is a jew who is merely one outwardly nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So Paul there in Romans 2 is declaring the thing that Peter declares, the, the thing that Jesus initially declared in the gospel accounts, that the problem is inward, within the heart, and not something physical and ceremonial. So then Peter, in expounding or unpacking this idea, tells them, you're putting God to the test. Problem number one, he's saying, is if you make them submit to circumcision, you are putting yourself in the role of God himself. Because God has not 
made that distinction. So you would be making a distinction that God himself has not made. You'd be playing God. And the second big problem is he says, you'd be putting a yoke on them that we and our forefathers could not even bear. You know, you'd be playing God, number one, but you couldn't even keep the yoke that you'd be putting upon them. This is an honest evaluation of the law from Peter. And then Peter does this genius thing. When in verse 11, he reverses the order. He says to them, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus, just as they will. In other words, he says, they aren't saved like us, but we, I don't know if you've seen this, we are saved like them. Now, Peter's remarks are just simple, humble, and logical. And he just beautifully and straightforwardly, like Peter could, explained our freedom from the law. You know, so he just says, look, we're, we're as Jewish people, we are going to be saved in the same way that they are saved. There are not two roads that lead to salvation. It's by grace. It's by faith. And all the assembly, verse 12, fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, he said, listen to me. Now, at this point, James is the head of the Jerusalem church. Now, we saw in Acts 12 that the apostle James, the brother of John, has already died. This James is the half-brother of Christ, the presumed author of the New Testament book of James. And he now, who, who has become prominent in this Jerusalem church, he speaks up and he, ga he gathers everyone's attentions, attention. Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, verse 14, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. It's interesting how James does this. When he relates to Peter, he calls him, you probably noticed there in verse 14, Simeon, which is a Jewish spelling of Simon, Peter's Jewish name. This is a very appropriate way to speak there in Jerusalem. And he announces that Peter had told everyone how God first visited the Gentiles. It wasn't first through Paul or Barnabas, but it was through Peter. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, James continued in verse 15, just as it is, as it is written, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will re rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who call, who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. And so James had an ultimate test. And the test was, is this biblical? Is this idea of God visiting the Gentiles a biblical concept? It's beautiful that it happened through Peter, but is there any, anything in the scripture that would cause us to anticipate or to expect a day when the Gentile world would receive the gospel? And in asking that question, he then answered it by quoting from Amos chapter 9, verse 11 and 12. Now this quote, in his mind, represented the totality of the prophets 
who all spoke of the Gentiles. And in Amos chapter 9, Amos speaks of the remnant of Edom, but James takes that phrase, the remnant of Edom, and he replaces it with the remnant of mankind. When he hears Edom, he hears Gentiles. And when he thinks Gentiles, he thinks of mankind. And so what he's pointing out is that Amos spoke of a day when Gentile salvation apart from the law might come. He's saying this does not contradict the Bible. This now seems to be God's focus at this time. And in that prophecy, Amos talked about a day when God would rebuild the tent of David. That one day God would return to his unfaithful wife, Israel, and restore and rebuild them. So he's declaring in one little passage God's beautiful plan for the nations and also for the people of Israel. And certainly when you read Romans 9 and 10 and 11, you come away with a strong impression that though God has turned his attention as he's longed to do from eternity past toward the nations, there will be a day that he turns his attention once again to the nation of Israel. Therefore, James says, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So James comes to a place where he has a, a word on all of this controversy. And his word on it is a summation of the theological issue. And he's basically saying circumcision cannot save men. So what we have to answer is how can Gentile and Jew live together? So he, he seems to propose an ethic of lifestyle that wouldn't offend those who have been steeped in Old Testament scriptures and in mosaic ceremonial living and lifestyle. Now, it's interesting because, and the reason, part of the reason I mentioned that is because he then told us of four things that he thought that Gentiles should abstain from. Things polluted by idols, uh, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. Now, the question that we would have about these four things is very simple. It's this. Were these four things ceremonial and temporary or moral and permanent? In other words, is the church today bound to refrain from all four of these things because morally we have that obligation and this is a permanent command of God, or were these ceremonial things that in that age when the waters of Jewishness and Gentileness were colliding, God is asking for these ceremonies to be observed in a temporary fashion so as to ease the merging of the two. Now, 
honestly, as we look at them, three of the four feel very ceremonial. Uh, the things polluted by idols, what's been strangled, and things that, uh, you know, eating things that are still have the blood, you know, in them. But sexual immorality, that prohibition goes way beyond ceremony. It's, it's actually one of the things that is uh, preeminent throughout the latter epistles, uh, learning a biblical sexual ethic amongst God's people. It was one of the major categories of life that the new Gentile world needed to learn about. M many Jews who came to Christ really didn't need all that much teaching about having a biblical sexual ethic because they were already basically living that ethic out. Uh, they needed to have some reprogramming as far as how it fit within a gospel community and mindset. But the Gentiles, on the other hand, needed that teaching and there was nothing ceremonial or temporary about it. So the question is, are most of these ceremonial, but one is moral? You know, and as you go through the rest of the New Testament, what you discover are these ceremonial portions later are considered optional or voluntary. In Romans 14 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we'll read about things that have been sacrificed to idols and how someone could potentially, if their conscience was clean enough and they understood that that meat meant nothing and that those idols were nothing, they could potentially, with a clean conscience, eat the meat. So it appears that later, the church started realizing, hey, this is where we actually need to finally land on these issues. So it seems to me that James isn't saying, here's a permanent way that we need to live, but that he's saying, hey, here's some ceremonial things that are temporary that we need to communicate to the church. And that over time, the church figured out, well, hey, three of these four are ceremonial and temporary. And one of them is significant, the sexual immorality one. And we really need to cling to that. And the rest are gray areas that individual believers have to seek the Lord and their conscience about. So anyways, all of that to say, that the main issue of whether these Gentiles needed to become Jews is settled in James's mind. So they respond in verse 22. Then it seemed good for the, to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men from among the brothers with the following letter. So now you have these this group and that accountability is good in this group setting. They'd have the protection of eyewitnesses. So they had Jew, uh, Jewish men who would go with them to Antioch. And uh, Luke mentioned Silas and he'll become a significant figure later on he, as one of the men who went. The brothers, verse 23, here's the letter. Both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives 
for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So even in the introduction of the letter, the way that they talk about the Judaizers, you know, they troubled you, the way they talk about Barnabas and Paul, men who risked their lives, it's obvious where this letter is going. We have sent we have therefore sent, verse 27, Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. So that's important. They did not feel that this had originated from them. And this goes for all of the other councils in the future, both within the Bible and outside of the Bible. It's not that any council decides which books are in the canon or not in the canon, but they recognize it. They see what God has done. And what they're saying here is, it's, it wasn't us who determined who gets saved and how to be saved, but the Holy Spirit had made that decision and we went through the work and labor of just trying to recognize what God has been doing. He said, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well farewell. So they just repeated that which James had proposed and the effects of their decision or better said their recognition of God's decision would have been manifold and beautiful. First of all, the gospel would have now throughout the world run free without an entanglement to Judaism. Number two, the entire church would appreciate Paul more because he's mentioned in this letter and he needed as many open doors as he could get. Number three, hostility from the Jews would likely increase from this point forward because now there is this sharp divide. This is not Judaism plus, but it's uh, really in a sense a graduation from Judaism. And number four, it was a killer of works righteousness. So when they were sent off, verse 30, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. So uh, this is not hard for us to imagine how a letter like this celebrating their freedom in Christ would have been so well received. And after they had spent some time, verse 33, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. However, verse 34, it seemed good to Silas to remain there, to, to stay in Antioch. And that little line is actually missing from several important Greek manuscripts. So maybe a scribe added it later, or maybe it just was missing in some of the earlier manuscripts. But somehow Silas remained there in Antioch because later he'll be part of Paul's missionary team. But Paul, verse 35, and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought it best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. 
So Paul has this idea now as we close chapter 15, after a time of basking in the glow of this victory or this celebration from the Jerusalem council, uh, uh, basking in the grace of God and just enjoying it. Paul says, hey, Barnabas, let's go back to all the cities that we previously have visited and let's follow up with these infant churches. And Barnabas, it appears, feels that that is a good idea, but he says, let's bring John Mark with us. Paul objects and says, I don't want to take the one who left us in Pamphylia. We saw this in chapter 13. Paul had remembered now Mark's previous departure and it rankled him. And there arose, verse 39, a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas, there he is again, and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, I think it's beautiful that Luke recorded this conflict between Paul and Barnabas. He was unwilling to gloss it over. It was, after all, a crucial development because rather than only going to visit the churches they'd previously ministered to, this breakout of Paul and Barnabas would lead to two missionary teams and it would actually expand the gospel work and ministry considerably. And, you know, we can only use our imaginations in thinking about what Paul and Barnabas were arguing about. Paul was thinking of the blood of Christ. Well, Barnabas might have been thinking about his family blood. John Mark was related to him. Paul was thinking about Mark's unhelpfulness, and Barnabas might have been thinking, well, he might be useful in the future. Paul might have been thinking about the importance of bearing fruit unto God, and Barnabas might have been thinking about the importance of showing grace to people who have failed. Paul might have been thinking of missionary work like a war, while Barnabas might have been thinking of it like an opportunity to raise up the next generation. Paul might have said, not right now. Well, Barnabas might have said he has a a very bright future. And, you know, they they both may have been right. Eventually, we know that Mark did become useful to Paul in ministry. He said as much in 2 Timothy 4, verse 11. He's very useful to me for ministry, Paul would say. And Mark eventually became an author of Scripture when he wrote the book of Mark, Uh, likely as a recounting of Peter's recollection of the life and ministry of Jesus. And Paul would later speak of Barnabas in positive terms in some of his letters. So they didn't stay at odds with each other for the rest of their lives. One went to Cyprus, that was Barnabas, and to me that says it all because that was his hometown and his home country. He wanted to go back there and Paul wanted to pioneer. So we leave Mark and Barnabas at this point, and we follow Paul and Silas, who would be wonderful blessing to Paul and his ministry. And so they left and went to Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So God ultimately used this division for his glory, establishing two missionary teams. God bless you, and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.